Would you rather win or lose? Uh, win, of course. Of course. Winning's the choice. Win! Um, yeah, I guess for the hunger. <laughs> What's so bad about losing? So bad about losing mm -hmm. is how you cry. So you cry yeah, God, you. when you lose? Yeah. It happened yeah. at our Mimi's house. Like this uh, jewelry game, Daddy kept winning, and then he kept getting the crown. It was very funny. And I kept starting crying. His face was just so red. And he was like, yeah. Does he cry a lot? Uh, yeah. It's not complicated. It's no fun to lose. For inspiration on following God through times of failure, look no further than the life of David. Well, it had been several years since David was inaugurated king and things were good in Israel. Everything was up and to the right, as they say, in the business world. He was living in a palace. The nation was experiencing a season of relative peace. And 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15 says, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. David was a wise and benevolent king, and he was prospering personally and professionally. But as someone has observed, prosperity is good campaigning weather for the devil. And it's often when we're doing well. It's often when things are going our way that we are most at risk to fail, most at risk to fall. And 2 Samuel chapter 11 records such a seismic shift in David's life. But it's much more than a story about lust and adultery and conspiracy to murder. It's a story about the temporary hardening of David's heart, a heart that was once tender and open and alive, but it became calloused and closed and dead. So even if you have heard this story before, listen to it again for the very first time this morning, will you? First, we see David's temptation in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. Now listen, this is not the David we know and love. You know, the David who runs to the battlefront, madly twirling a sling, propelling a stone into the forehead of a giant, bringing him down, the David who passionately opposes Israel's enemies, a man who lived life to the limit, composing music, writing lyrics, writing poetry, leading, loving, dancing, rendering wise judgment. David lived a purpose-driven life with a full heart, but somehow, somehow in the midst of his success, his zeal for life and godliness drained out of him. And he's in a spiritual funk. He's a shell of the man he once was. Israel's soldiers were out in the field, risking their lives, defending the nation, sweating, bleeding, dying. And where is David, the commander-in-chief, the one who should have been with the troops? He's at home, taking afternoon naps, leisurely 
strolling on his marble deck. And from his vantage point in the city, David is surrounded by the visible signs of his success. The nation is united. The economy is flourishing. The military is dominant. And the former shepherd boy living off the land is now a king living in a palace. But watch out, David. When you arrive at midlife, your late 30s, your 40s, your early 50s, you're in a vulnerable place, and you could destroy everything you've built during the first half of your life. Success can be dangerous, and David's privilege and power and prominence and prosperity derailed him spiritually. So late one afternoon, he not only looked out on his success, he looked out and saw something else. 2 Samuel 11, verse 2, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. So far, no problem. Being tempted is not a sin, but the defining moment is in whether he would respond to temptation's lure. And in that moment, David confronted the question that you and I must answer from time to time. Here it is. Will I look or will I leave? David lingered too long. He did not act quickly and decisively enough. If only David had thought this situation through in advance of the moment. If only he had disciplined himself ahead of time, like Job who wrote in Job 31 verse 1, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. As a young man, I remember being challenged to make this same covenant. Listen, it might be impossible not to notice someone attractive. But it is definitely possible not to take a second look. And it is the second look that opens the door of lust. It is the second look that opens the door of emotional intrigue. It is the second look that opens the door of seductive speech or behavior, which finally opens the door to moral failure. And David looked too long. In fact, he leered he failed to abort his lust at the time when it has to be aborted, early on, up front, before it takes control of your thoughts. And that's why 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. That's why 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 counsels us to flee youthful lusts. Make your knee-jerk response to run the other way. Lust is not a temptation that you stand toe-to-toe and confront. Lust is not a temptation that you sit down and debate. You just leave immediately. David was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was bored and restless, and he put himself in a place to be tempted. I think he might have had an idea 
what he would see by going up on the roof. He knew that his palace was elevated, that it was higher than the other homes. He knew he could look down on other rooftops from his vantage point, and he knew that the rooftops were private places where people went to bathe or to lounge in the afternoons, not fully dressed. People went to bathe or lounge, staying there out of their unair-conditioned homes. And so he put himself in harm's way, spiritually, emotionally. So I want to ask, do you routinely or have you ever put yourself in a place to be tempted? Teenagers in the back row of a dark theater, an unmarried couple alone together in an apartment, a man watching television late at night, flipping through channels, pausing to look at sexually suggestive images, college students surfing the Internet for pornographic websites or attending a fraternity or sorority drinking party, a woman drinking alone in a cocktail lounge at happy hour, a businessman visiting Las Vegas hotspots on a business trip. Do you ever put yourself in a place to be tempted? Or do you mean it when you pray? Father, lead me not into temptation. Listen, if you're on a diet, you don't go eat at the Golden Corral. And if you're trying to get out of debt, you don't go shopping every other day. And if you're trying to control your temper, you don't try to fix a plumbing leak. See? My counsel to you, my counsel to you, if you do not want to make a bad decision that may have far-reaching, destructive consequences in your moral life, in your spiritual life, here it is. Number one, don't put yourself in a place to be tempted. And number two, if you are tempted, leave. Leave. Don't look. David started by looking then lusting, then inquiring, then arranging a meeting, then committing adultery. One step led to the next, to the next, and he should not have taken the first step. You know, I think sometimes we ask the wrong questions. We ask, how far can I go and still be okay with God? Instead, what we ought to be asking is, how close can I get to God's best for me. And some say, well, yes, I want to live a life that honors God. I do, but I just can't help myself. Oh, yes, you can. If a policeman shines a flashlight in your car window, you can help yourself. If you hear footsteps, if you hear voices, if you hear a door opening, you can help yourself. If you know your behavior is being monitored, you can help yourself. Here's the thing. When you're convinced, when you're convinced that the reward for obeying God is greater than the pleasure of yielding to the temptation, you, you can help yourself. So what about God's unconditional love for you? What about Jesus' suffering and sacrifice on the cross for you? What about 
your character? What about your reputation? What about your witness to your children and grandchildren? Is that enough of a reward? It should be. It should be. One more thing here. I don't want to let Bathsheba, (laughs) the Sheba of the bath, I don't want to let her off the hook. Don't you think she was a little indiscreet, a little immodest? She knows she's attractive. She knows she can be seen. I don't want to read into the text here, but she strikes me as just a bit of an exhibitionist. And she did comply when she was sent for, and she did enter into the adulterous relationship. But hey, it's, it's not her problem if David can't control himself, right? I don't know about that. Which is worse? Deliberately putting yourself in a place to be tempted or intentionally being the temptress. Is there really any difference? If only David or Bathsheba, one or the other, had just said no, the adultery wouldn't have happened. The subsequent murder of Bathsheba's husband wouldn't have happened. The death of the baby that she and David conceived, none of it, none of it would have happened. But sadly, both of them were weak-willed. And so the rest is tragedy. The fact is that this so-called harmless act between two consenting adults can have some very, very harmful outcomes. Well, that's David's temptation. What about David's deception? Take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you read down through chapter 11 from verse 3 on, you will see the repetition of this verb, David sent, David sent, David sent, David sent. David sent someone to find out about her. David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. He slept with her. David found out about the pregnancy, and then he sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. He's going to send Uriah home to have a little furlough at home and then go back to the battlefront. And when Uriah is killed in battle, according to David's plan, David sent for Bathsheba and she became his wife. Look at the sequence of the verbs. David's taking charge. David's asserting control. David is pulling the trigger on his lust. He yielded to the lure of sexual sin. He initiated the liaison and tried to keep it secret, but then a few weeks later Bathsheba announced that she was pregnant, and with this announcement David had a decision to make. Would he repent or would he attempt to hide what he has done? That is the same question that you and I must sometimes answer. Will I cover up whatever it is? Or will I come clean? Sadly, David did what many do in this situation. They hide their sin. Deny, deny, deny. I think the rationale is, hey, if I have committed sexual sin, what's a lie or two to cover it up? It's just no big deal. So in an attempt to hide his sin, David brought her husband Uriah home from the battlefront, instructed him to go home and spend the night, but Uriah is his own man. He ignored the order. 
He's a dedicated soldier. He is loyal to his comrades. He's a man of honor. He's a man of self-control. And if his fellow soldiers in the field don't get to enjoy a furlough, he won't either. So, so then David attempts to ply Uriah with alcohol. But David's attempts to undermine Uriah's willpower with drink failed. So David's third attempt to cover up involves what is, in effect, a contract killing. David gives Uriah a message which he hand-delivers to General Joab, directing Joab to place Uriah on the front lines and in the heat of battle to draw back from him so he would be struck down and die. And the evil deed is done. And Uriah died in the military service of a king who stole his wife. Now more than likely, I'm speaking this morning to someone who's living out this same kind of cover-up as David. Now, may not be adultery, probably not murder. But I know that people come to church hiding something, living with a secret. And like David, you might think that the worst thing that could happen to you is to get caught. That's not the worst thing that could happen. The worst thing that could happen is for you to never get caught and to make it all the way through your life, hiding who you really are. But your soul is destroyed by secret sin, and you go to your grave a respectable fraud who was always worried that someone would find out tragically ignoring the one who sees it all. Deceit is a cancer that will isolate you, insulate you. It will cut you off from God. It will cut you off from people, and it can only be excised. It's a cancer that can only be excised by coming clean. And don't wait for the threat of exposure to come clean. Don't wait. Listen, friends. A confession prompted by conscience means so much more than one that is coerced or one that is preceded by public exposure. Look at the words of Psalm 32, verses 2 to 11. These are words from the heart of David when he finally did come clean. Read between the lines here. David said, Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. While I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Well, we've seen David's temptation. We've seen David's deception. I want us to conclude by seeing David's restoration. In 2 Samuel 11, verse 27, there's one single statement that could be easily overlooked. It says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So, so now God moves. And the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to David with a message, a parable asking for his judgment. It seems that a rich man had some house guests who craved lamb chops. So rather than 
take a lamb from his own vast flock, he confiscated the one little ewe lamb, female lamb, from his poor neighbor. His neighbor had treated that lamb like his own, his own child. And the rich man took it by force, he butchered it, and he cooked it, and he fed it to his guests. And David heard that much. And David burned with anger, and he said, The man who has done this deserves to die. So David's moral outrage set him up for Nathan's indictment. David, you are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. And David has one more question to answer in this defining moment, and it's the same question that you and I must periodically answer. Will I choose guilt or will I choose grace? More than a year had gone by since that night when David saw Bathsheba on his rooftop, and God had given David plenty of time to repent. Now, finally, he must face his sin, and in that moment, he's broken, and it is a beautiful thing. When the shell of a hard heart breaks, it's a beautiful thing. 2 Samuel 12, 13 records David's word, words. He simply said, I have sinned against the Lord. And this is a pivotal point in David's life, my friends. This is a watershed event. This is his moment of truth. David has been living in denial for months. But ignoring his sin didn't make his sin go away. When you refuse to open a due bill that comes to you in the mail, that doesn't solve your debt problem. Instead, every day of denial only increases the balance which eventually has to be paid. And David has been distracted. He's been diverted from being a man after God's heart. But in taking ownership of his sin, he confronts reality. He comes home to his heavenly father. He returns to his first love. David is finally honest with himself, honest with Nathan, honest with God. And in his brokenness, he confessed. And confession is the only cure for living in denial. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance. And through his brokenness and tears, he tells God the truth about himself. And he chooses, he chooses grace over guilt. These are some of the most beautiful words in the Bible. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night against you. And you alone have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me now. Let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. In that passage, there are actually three Hebrew words for sin, and David uses all three of those words for sin, and he asks for three favors of forgiveness. Wash me, blot out, cleanse me. David's 
David is disinfecting the wound of sin in his own life. A few years back, the New York Times ran a full-page ad with this question. When was the last time you had a good conversation about sin? And for many of us, it's probably been a long time. We don't, we don't like the word sin, and we prefer the word indiscretion. We like the word dysfunction. We like the word addiction, mistake, bad judgment. But just for today, that little three-letter word, sin, this morning, I don't want you to think of it so much as a theological term or a moral term, but as a relational term. Sin is avoiding God. Sin is abandoning God. It's a relational word. And we can learn some things about sin from David's story. Tolerating overt sin in our lives, tolerating secret sin in our lives will keep us. It'll keep us from pursuing the heart of God. You just won't get off dead center in your pursuit of God's heart. Because sin always deceives. We can get judgmental pretty quick about other people's sin, but we tend to deny or rationalize our own. Nathan said to David, You, you are the man. And while we want to focus on someone else, God says, it's about you. (laughs) It's about your sin. God says, let's change your surly attitude. Let's change your sour disposition. Let's change your bad habits. Let's change your marriage, your family, your neighborhood, your school, your community. So how about this? How about we start with you? Sin always deceives, and it always destroys. David's sin impacted more people than he ever imagined. And even when sin is forgiven, there are often consequences. David's personal life and his kingdom would never fully recover. For the first half of his life, it's true. Before 2 Samuel 11, everything is up and to the right. After 2 Samuel 11, everything is running downhill. The baby born to David and Bathsheba dies. David's moral authority with his young adult children is lost. His family becomes completely dysfunctional. Sin destroys. The wages of sin is death. But sin also is always discovered. I'm not sure we believe this is true, but... It's true here, isn't it? The problem pregnancy was confirmed, and today the venereal disease is diagnosed. A confidant tells your secret. A former lover develops a conscience or attempts extortion. An email gets discovered. The memory on your computer is exposed. A conversation is recorded on an answering machine. A photo surfaces that you forgot about or that you never even knew had been taken. The Bible warns in Numbers 32, 23, your sins will find you out, either in this life or in the greater life to come. And everybody thinks, I'm the exception. No one will ever know. I will be the one to get away with it. 
And all that's the bad news. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. I want to close with the good news. Although sin deceives and it destroys and it is always discovered, I want to conclude with this truth. Sin has been defeated. Because David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan could say, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. And while this story reveals David's sin and its consequences in his life, it is ultimately a story that ends with a focus on God's invitation to experience his grace. David would be forgiven. He would heal spiritually. He would go on to write many of the Psalms. He would have all other kings compared to him. And he would eventually provide the lineage for Jesus, the son of David, who was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And the gospel is God's invitation to come to Jesus Christ in the midst of our foolish, twisted, self-destructive sin. An invitation to come clean. An invitation to come alive. I wonder if you're ready to respond to his invitation today. Our section hosts and pastors will be here to meet you. If you have a decision to make about Christ, about Crossroads, we invite you to come as we stand and as we worship together.